Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles. We're going to pick it up uh, where we left off, sort of. The title for you that like those things and I do, it's kind of like titling a song to me. It just helps me grab a focus. A virgin, comma, a vision, comma, a wise visitation, exclamation mark. And so the main gospel that we'll be going through, we're going to visit two of them, but we're going to pick it up back in um, Luke chapter 2. So hold your place there. And then I'm giving you some other notable areas to look at as well that are important. Luke 2. And then for a preamble towards this. The things that should be exciting with regard to, so how do we know what we know, what it's saying? And part of that is being anchored in the prophecies that have been foretold. One is not seldom necessarily referred to all the time, but I do believe that it's an important one, and I've referenced it several years in a row. So you'll want to turn with me right now, capturing this uh, theme. I want you to go to um, Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 is what we would call an interlude from the Lord. It's about 400 years to the time that this was given to the time of what we had just completed last week. So Isaiah, about 700 years. This, about 400 years. And it's considered a time of silence from God. I've called it kind of an interlude. You remember that in a couple of the songs that we sang, there were extended interludes. And I loved it. I tend not to do well in them as an artist. I don't know why. I'm, I'm pretty much prone to go from verse to chorus, verse to chorus, you know, maybe a bridge in there. But man, did I appreciate the interlude, the reflection that I had on what I had been singing, what I had been told in the songs. And so... That's not necessarily an easy thing for a band to do. It has to be very well crafted. All of the instruments are having to learn to subdue. And especially a lead singer has to be one that is careful that when the interlude is over, his voice speaks out the next refrain, the next verse. We've seen that in the Bible, the interlude that happened, that this gives way to, and we've seen that in the time in which the message was proclaimed, wow, the timeliness, it wasn't off-key. We'll see that exercised in this as well. It was right in tune with what the Lord had already put down 
on the score sheet, literally, of what he knew would be penned and available to us. So Micah right now continues to emphasize the validity of prophecy. It says here in chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Verse 3, Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. I was so impressed that everything that was sung today and will close the service in had so much of what I'm sharing today. I really never orchestrate the band. I leave it to prayer and that as those who have been gifted in singing and leading us in worship, they'll be touched by the Lord. But I marvel at how much of it seems to be relevant to the sermon, the things that we are revisiting. And so this is important because it validates what Isaiah had spoken, reconfirms it, that in a specific place, this being Bethlehem, the house of bread, Jesus would allude to, I am the manna that came from heaven. It just is so encouraging to see that. It is a prophecy in advance that is fulfilled in what we have already looked at. What's the other notable scripture, though, that's important for an anchor? So I'm going to ask you to direct your eyes to Numbers, if you would. And I'm going to have you go to Numbers 24. So now we're clocking back not hundreds of years further and we're going to take a look at verse 15 of chapter 24 of Numbers. This is important with regard to what Matthew chapter 2 will be saying. Because in today's title is simply this, a virgin, a vision, and a visitation. It's a divine wise visitation. Wisdom is granted by God, both supernaturally, but also practically. What is it that I spoke that's available to you to understand now based on what it is you've heard, what it is you've seen, the evidence that I've given to you? 
This particular man is Balaam. He has a prophetic gifting, but his heart was not purely dedicated to God. He was actually a prophet that was not a Jew, but he was acknowledged as one who could speak powerfully and seemingly in harmony with God. But there was a time in which he was of ill repute. He was able to be bought out by the enemy of the Jews who wanted him and his prophetic gifting to utter a curse concerning Israel. He was on his way to do that in Numbers chapter 22, about verse 22. When you hear Balaam, we usually associate him with a donkey. And the donkey that was used in Balaam's life to correct him from what he was intending to do is interesting in terms of a lineage in which the Lord would be riding a donkey into Jerusalem to deliver himself. Balaam was corrected by this donkey who in his correction and speaking to Balaam prevented the angel of the Lord from striking and killing Balaam. Whatever happened in his mind between that incident and where we are right now, we would call that corrective surgery of the heart. He could see things, and so maybe it's better to say he had eye surgery. I went in to have my eyes looked at on Friday. It was one of those like appointments that just opened. You can't usually get in to see an eye doctor very quickly. I made a call, and they said, well, we have an opening at 2. Can you make it? I said, I'll be there. Because even now my eyes are dimming. You guys are a little bit fuzzy. You look great, but you're just a little bit out of tune. And so I had, you know, the air puff blown into my eye. And of course, on each one of those, I didn't scream, but I jumped. Not quite stable. And then when I went in to have the optometrist look at my eyes, he examined each one. He took out the records of what had been recorded five years earlier. Four years. That's almost five years. Solidly four. I don't really go in to have my eyes looked at like I should. I'm one that'll polish my glasses extra hard and tweak my frames. And then I'll go back and trick my eyes by using another pair of glasses that came from five years earlier. And so... He went back in the records and said, Aha, uh -huh, we see this. Mm -hmm, I see that. You know, it looks like you have the beginnings of a cataract. And I'm going, I can't. That's what my mom and dad had. That's what my grandma had. That's impossible. And it's the beginnings. It happens, Rich. Oh, it looks like you have a little bit of a prism in your prescription. What's that? Well, it just it helps illuminate better light resources that your eyes can focus. Well, I've noticed when I take off my glasses, it's like my eyes want to cross. Yeah, that's, that's kind of one of the things that the prism will do. It actually is correcting your eyes from wanting to do that. But then when you take them off, then basically they're doing what they kind of want to do. I say, can there be any changes in that? Nope. It's just a weakness of the eye. And this is meant to do that. How many prisms? Well, 
that's a term that's elusive, but there are basically four that we can go. You're on number one right now. <laughs> oh my goodness. I just want to see, Lord. Here's what this man, who had records on his behavior earlier and had turned to have his eyes opened and to be obedient, says in advance of the event that we'll look at later. The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened. Couldn't see before. I saw the loot, but I didn't see God. Chose to ignore him. <clears throat> and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty. When I say that, that is what this is about, to see the vision of the Almighty, to be in no doubt as to who speaks to you, who has loved you, who has made provision for you, both eternally and practically, who falls down with eyes wide open, not closed anymore, Balaam, are they? They're wide open and you fall down. What does that manifest itself? It shows that Balaam, to the best that he can project right now, is a man that's reverently respecting God. He was almost judged by God unto death, killed. And he turned from his wickedness, and now he sees clearly. Verse 17 tells us what he sees. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. I'll stop there. That was the most significant part of it that he confirms what Isaiah said, the emphasis right now as well, in what has been voiced by Micah, extremely important. And one of the other areas that you can look forward to as well is in Daniel chapter 9, who hosts the prophetic word of God with resulting in the precise time in which Jesus, Messiah, would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Balaam corrected while riding a donkey. Jesus satisfying the words of prophecy inevitably 33 years after his birth, which is what we've been looking at. Return to Luke chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 7 just for a tag from where I left off. A virgin has given birth. Her name, Mary. Mary has done what most women probably would not do after a birth, and that's to swaddle the child, only to lay that infant in a trough. It was symbolic, we said, both in the cloth that was 
laid ribbon by ribbon upon his body, almost much like we've seen in mummification, graves cloth, swaddling cloth, the same concept. A mother who has gone through the hardship of birthing after nine months, many pilgrimages, noteworthy of her vitality and her commitment to this pregnancy, to find herself not in a quaint and pleasant birthing place, but in a manger, in a facility that basically on the larger part would hold the animal, the livestock. And this is where she would be giving birth. You would think on that alone she would cleave to her baby son, Jesus. Or at least the next person that would be invited to have hands on the baby would be the father. What we saw in this last week is this was her exclamation. He is the son of the father. And he, like stories before me, will be shown as an offering from this mother to the God who has made his appointment with mankind, laying him in that. It's pretty extraordinary. And there's only very few reasons that a mom would surrender that. This is unique insofar as that Mary is basically saying, your handmaid has delivered and I've been delivered, and he's yours, Father. What an incredible statement. Notice what happens here, though, in how this unfolds, because as she has wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn, on the outside of this place in which Jesus had been born, there are notable individuals that are waiting. They're having an interlude. They're having a moment of pausing after a long day of tending sheep. They are not too distant from where this is happening, and they're going to have the visitation, literally, of heaven come right into where they are working there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. It's a job that never ends. It's day to night, night to day. It's throughout. Shifts possible, but if not, limited sleep, certainly. Tired, fatigued. But here they are. They're doing what is in their heritage to do. And we find that in the so doing of it, at a time that they would not have predicted, behold, an angel in verse 9 of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. This is analogous to what Paul would have discovered on his bent towards persecuting the church. A blinding light from heaven actually smote his eyes and he could not see. This would be the Shekinah 
glory of God manifested in this heavenly visitation. It would have been a blinding light to them. And it's considered a glorious visitation and such that they were in fear. This is an interesting term because shepherds would be noted for being rather fearless. Shepherds would also have been noted for having quite an attitude. As we very often will see in church narratives, you know, cleanly robed, tender in personality, caring, they're very industrial. It takes probably about 24 to 48 hours where the shower you just had ain't working and whatever you sprayed on yourself, that's not doing the trick. And these guys and the way that they had to take their sheep in and out and the garb that they would wear probably didn't make them hygienically altogether appealing. They were known as those who could do the job of either one tending a quaint flock of their own or taking on the responsibility of larger flocks from individuals. It has been conjectured that they may have also been seeing that lambs that would inevitably qualify to be sacrificed in the temple would be presented, not necessarily personally by them, but tended until they could be handed off to the owners who would take them in. So they had a job that actually didn't get a lot of credit towards them. They're credited for being on the job right now, but not necessarily anything other than just a means to an end religiously. But here's something very special. It seems to me that the Lord says, these guys are the ones I want. The ones that others are just kind of taking for granted. I'm going to grant them an opportunity to be taken into the place that their hearts will confirm everything that either they had once heard or a new revelation of what they can be entrusted in the hearing. See, God really does use individuals in which he can trust that what they see and what they hear from him, they will believe and they will testify. And that's what you see happening right now. They're going to be granted an extraordinary, authentic vision, literally, of heaven coming down. And so as they are pronounced as greatly afraid, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They're getting a theological encouragement right now after I'm sure being ones who were highly feeling disqualified and underappreciated. But it is interesting that as this is speaking of this, I love this emphasis. Born to you this day in the city of David. Mary would hear that the spirit would overshadow her and she would conceive. The shepherds are saying, born to you this day. I think that maybe that is 
an encouragement really to all of us who perhaps feel spiritually barren, neglected, forsaken, whatever it may be, is that to them this would have been an extraordinary compliment unto us. Really? That's amazing. Unto us a child is born. Very likely the nomadic lifestyle would have been one very difficult to have a marriage in. And yet here these guys are hearing essentially there's a gift of life and you're going to get it have eyes on it. This incredible moment in which the voice you're hearing is now going to give you revelation and you will see. What a vision. Balaam could only imagine. Not yet, not here. It's a distance away. These guys are going to be experiencing, as well as in the next chapter, which happens two years later, the vision. And so as this continues, this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to us, which the Lord has made known to us. That statement tells you that they were spiritual men in an underappreciated vocation except for the fact they were good at it and they were faithful in it. That's one of the things that we know for sure about a quality or attribute of the shepherds. They were faithful in it. The faithfulness represents that what they were given, they didn't lose. They were on both offense and defense to protect the frail. And in this case, they were both lambs and sheep and rams. This was their lot. They were ones to be reckoned with by the enemy forces, wolves, lions in some parts, bears, robbers and thieves. These men would defend to perhaps even the limitation of their life for the sake of these creatures, fickle creatures. And they're the ones that now get a chance to see what the scriptures define as the Lamb of God. Slain before the foundations of the earth, it's interesting if you recall just a couple of verses ago that they find the babe, they are told they shall, lying in a manger. In the same place that Mary had put baby Jesus, the baby appears to be back there again or still there. That again shows a defining attribute of a mother, a woman of God. I'm trusting the Lord on where I've left my baby. My baby is where my heart is. 
to God on that altar for what he may do and what I have yet to discover. But how long did it take for them to move from the outer regions into Bethlehem? Did they bring their flock or was one left behind? Did they entrust their flock to the divine for the sake of obedience to the word that they heard? We're not told. My thoughts are they remained faithful and they headed there with everything that was at their disposal and their responsibility. As they moved towards this, though, their expectation must be heightened because a choir breaks out. And this doesn't seem to be mystical. It seems to be authentically visual. They can see the angel of the Lord. They can see the hosts of heaven coming as a choir testifying of this extraordinary moment that they exclusively are being invited to come in on. What would we do? Let's see what the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. What is she doing? She's moving into a time of interlude. Could in the distance she have heard the choir singing from heaven before they dispatched and met back into heaven? Could she have had still a song in her heart for she wrote prophetically concerning the announcement of her conception? Music abounding, rests and interludes evident. But one of the things that we see here is that they, as Mary did, they are moving towards satisfying this extraordinary word. And the movement is that they shall bear witness. They will give a testimony of his life. If these shepherds are between the ages of 18 and 25, can you imagine what they will be experiencing if they are privileged to live 30 more years, they will see and hear and take note of this child growing and becoming in fullness of the Spirit, the manifestation of Emmanuel, God with men. I mean, it's easy to dismiss them Hey, God was born. He's over there. We just saw him. Great song was sung. Strong word was given. We're going back to the sheep. There's stuff that we don't necessarily know, but doesn't it make sense that whether they're 18-year-olds or 50-year-olds that are managing the sheep, they're a living testimony 
of looking in upon a life of the great shepherd, Emmanuel. There's no argument they voice. Fear, they've already taken care of that. Trusting in the Lord, they've obeyed him. And I just find that so fascinating. Mary has this interlude, this moment in which she ponders even more deeply what she's entered into with God. Handmaiden of the Lord, be it done to me according to thy will. And these shepherds, all righty, we get to speak now. We have a reason to not simply be satisfied simply in shepherding, but we're going to be heralds. That's what we're doing. We'll shepherd and we will herald this good news. We'll stay on task with what we're doing, but we've got other things to add to that. And it's pretty exciting. The shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Move over to Matthew chapter 2, a version, a virgin, a vision, and a wise visitation. In this particular gospel account, it moves us two years forward. Chapter 2 opens this way, Matthew. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Pretty cool. Balaam has the vision back in Numbers. He's faced off with having a judgment that was suspended in which his life was in jeopardy for being disobedient. He had to pronounce blessings on the children of Israel. And in the process of complying, he's given this vision that now, right now, is confirmed with these wise men. Where did the wise men come? There's conjecture on that. But they're not locals. They've traveled afar and it may be that they have, in fact, traveled from as far as Babylon. Where would they have been given that intuition or that scholarly understanding? And it could be conjectured that there were some great Jewish men who grew up in Babylon. And at that time, it may very well be that the pennings of Daniel, alluding to chapter 9 that we get to read, could have been a clue for these guys, highly influenced by some Jewish young men who never bowed the knee, never compromised, that though they weren't in the place they wanted to be, they brought the authority and conviction of living a life for the Lord to a place that was absent of the Lord. So influential were they that Nebuchadnezzar on several occasions would repent and provoke his people to honor the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. 
Daniel would live in captivity, we know, up to about 83 years of age. And he would never be brought back from exile. 70 years of his life would be spent approximately in captivity. These men, perhaps coming from that far of a distance, somewhere between 700 to 900 miles, possibly making this pilgrimage and doing so in the authority of the scriptures. They say that we've seen this star. And notice this. They emphasize, and we've come to worship him. Who is this guy? What, a baby? What we know is that they have sacrificed in faith to travel afar, and it's to worship, literally. Not necessarily right now a baby, because this is like two years later, a child. Talk about humility. Talk about reverence. Talk about faith. These men are showing that. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Interesting that just now he's making inquiry. And just now evidence of that is going to be given through an Old Testament quote. So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Not take advantage of them, Herod. Not causing them to have less faith in me, but full faith in me, Herod. When Herod, uh, then Herod, in verse 7, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Did it appear earlier? And there's conjecture on that. that this was actually a brilliant reckoning on that night that Jesus was born and a suspension of this glorious stellar light. And if so, that makes a lot of sense because if Romans was penned to say in the 19th verse that all of creation will indict men who have disbelieved based on what it is they've seen of God's creation, then it would make perfect sense that in the obvious, it was simply dismissed. Ah, no big deal. We've seen stars before. We've seen manifestations of things we can't explain. No big deal. But if so, and that were evident, or if the Lord allowed there to be audible projection of the songs of the angels, you'd have to say, how could they not have heard that? How can people pass through 
24 different radio stations and not hear the Word of God on perhaps now a third of them. Or Christian music, in my opinion, that rivals anything that the secular world can give. It was not easy in the days early in Christian music. Kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. There were prophets that had to take it really hard. That's the best you can do. But man, the prophetic voice broke through. And instrumentalists became awesome in handling their instruments. But there's a world that doesn't hear it. There's a world that can't see it. Why? The same reason that these couldn't. They weren't spiritually minded. They were carnally minded. Life in Jerusalem, the things that were being done, that was the most important thing. It's the same thing where we are presently in our country. How's our country done not too well? How can we make it better? Well, it's not happening the way that it ought to. The world, how has it gone? Falling to pieces. And he sent them to Bethlehem, verse 8. He didn't really send them. They were going. They only stalled long enough that God might have wise men look in the eyes of a fool to give him an opportunity to repent and change his heart. That's really what it was about. They knew exactly where they were going. They didn't need any directions from Herod. They needed to be able to stop there long enough to confirm the scriptures and to provoke him for a change of heart before God would change his destiny. Go search and carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Feigned spirituality, a lie. He had no intentions of that. And many in this world system can say the same thing. But notice this. When they heard the king, they departed and behold the star, which they had seen in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now we know that a dynamic effect in the sky, and we'll simply say, a star, if we're saying that their eyes were on that star and that star has precisely remained as an object of direction for them, we know this, they could never have gotten lost, and we know this, that it was precisely still holding its place over where Jesus would be found. What we need to understand is that in this time period, from that manger, they moved up a little bit. They eventually were able to have the acquisition of a home. We never heard Mary at any time saying, is this the best you can do, Joseph? Lord, really? This is the best you can do for me? And the Lord would say to her heart, 
It's coming. I'm going to do better for you. It's coming. With precision, these wise men make their way. They pay no attention to what Herod's ploy is. They just head. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Confirmation. Still on course. We're going to see God. We're going to see the next king. And when they had come into the house, this is our cue word, they're not in the manger. They're in a house. God was faithful. Baby Jesus is a child, probably right now, as of two years old, not in a manger, but probably clothed, running around. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. The importance here is that as wise men, they traveled with gifts. And the gifts speak both practically for the family, but also spiritually from God. In this, as their treasures are opened up, gold, obviously the precious commodity of a king, worthy to be given to a king, Frankincense, this would be the chief spice, costly, of a priest. Jesus would be both king, he would be both high priest, and the other is the myrrh, which was a spice highly desired and notable for burying their dead. He would be the sacrifice. He's acknowledged by these wise men, traveling perhaps at least 900 miles, faithfully to give to the Lord gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, and myrrh for the sacrifice as being the holy lamb of God. Pretty cool picture. A virgin, a vision, and a wise visitation. All three component parts separated at least now by two years. And what we know is that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, would satisfy and still does to this day everything in our lives and according to his word. And as each one of those unique characters were put in play, they all had a moment of decision. What do I do? with what it is, I know. I can refute it, that makes me a liar, or I can believe it, that makes me a man and woman of faith. I will choose to believe as a man and woman of faith. And I know that as God is faithful, I shall receive.